The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, which is found on page 968 of the Pew Bibles. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. As we're seated, shall we pray? Lord, give us meekness as we encounter you, as you speak to us. Cleanse our hearts and our minds by your spirit and change us. For Christ's sake, amen. What a delight to be back in Holy Trinity. My name is Jeremy Begbie. Always good to come back here. And my goodness, you're managing this building superbly. You've got another year, is that right, of this? Do you know after a year, you will probably fall in love with this building and you won't want to leave? That's why I can see a lot of shaking heads. And I wonder why. This wedding cake of a building, it's an extraordinary place. Anyhow, here we go. Blessed are the meek. I wonder if you've read a, a children's story by Roald Dahl called The Upside-Down Mice. A man of 87 lives in an old house, and he finds he's got mice breeding in the basement, and he wants to get rid of them. So he gets some mouse traps and baits them with cheese. Then he puts glue on the underneath of the traps and sticks them to the ceiling. That night, we're told, when the mice came out of their holes and saw the mouse traps on the ceiling, they thought it a tremendous joke. They walked around the floor, nudging each other and pointing up with their front paws and roaring with laughter. Next morning, the old man came into the room and he took the chair and put glue on the bottom of its legs and stuck it upside down on the ceiling near the mouse traps. He did the same with the table, the TV and the lamp. In fact, he took everything on the floor and stuck it upside down on the ceiling even put a little carpet up there. That night, the mice came back. They looked up, completely baffled. Good gracious me, said one. Look up there, there's the floor. Heaven's above. Or is that right? We must be standing on the ceiling. We're upside down. And one by one, they began to feel very dizzy. One of them cried, I'll faint if I have to stand on my head any longer. Me too, said another. So the very senior mouse took charge and said, don't worry, we'll all stand on our heads. Then we'll be the right way up. And that's what they did. One by one, they all stood on their heads. And one by one, they all passed out from a rush of blood to the brain. When the old man came down the next morning, the floor was littered with unconscious mice. And he swept them all the way and outside. You might like to have that in mind when you read the Sermon on the Mount especially when you read the Beatitudes, because Jesus starts talking in a very odd, very weird way about a very weird world, an upside-down world, a kind of alternative reality he calls the kingdom of heaven. And not just here, but all over the gospel, a world where the poor become rich and the rich poor, where the humble get exalted and the exalted humbled, where the first will be last and the last first, a world where the promoted get demoted, 
where the dishonest stewards get treated as heroes, where the delinquent son gets welcomed home while the hard-working one gets left out. Strange world, this upside-down world. And as with the mice, it'll make you dizzy just to think about it. And the more you hear about it, the stranger it seems, curiouser and curiouser, as Alice in Wonderland had it. And it gets all the stranger when you find out Jesus seems to believe it's very close. In fact, it's beginning to happen now. It's okay as long as he talks in stories and parables, but as you go through the gospel, it seems he believes that it's actually going to take place and going to take form right here with him. So what kind of world is this? And what's so odd about it? Our verse today, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It tells us a lot about this upside-down world. What kind of world does that verse conjure up? First of all, in the upside-down world, it's the downgraded who get upgraded. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus didn't dream up those words himself. In fact, he's borrowing from Psalm 37, which tells us the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And who are the meek? The downtrodden, the degraded, those who've been crushed by the powerful, those who have no voice, those who watch those at the top get away with murder while they get pushed into the dust, those who have given up hope or nearly given up hope that God still cares about them. The slaves of the southern plantations in the south. The children on the floor of a hospital in Aleppo. Those held in suspicion of abuse for a year. With virtually no evidence. The week before last we were remembering the horrors of the Aberfan disaster. In 1966, long before most of you were born when a vast slag heap next to a coal mine in South Wales slid down a hillside and killed over 100 children in a school. It took years and years for justice to be done there, years and years for that mining community to get the kind of compensation that they deserved, for anyone to admit any serious responsibility. They were crushed in more senses than one. A tiny little people overwhelmed by the mighty coal board and behind them a government in power. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What's he saying? He's saying one day justice will be done. The forgotten will be noticed. They will be raised up. They'll inherit the earth. That is, they will inherit the future God has in store for those who love him. They will be raised up living in a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. You'll have noticed that Bob Dylan now has decided to accept a Nobel Prize. In the 1960s, he wrote lines that became a kind of anthem of social protest. For the loser now will be later to win, for the times they are changing. Unfortunately, Steve Jobs picked up those words in the 1980s to launch an Apple shareholders meeting. The loser now will be later to win. That's not quite what Jesus had in mind. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's an announcement, a promise. 
See, we easily read that and say, oh, that's just ethics. It's just moral advice. This is what Jesus is telling us to be. Well, we'll come on to that. But before any of that, it's an announcement about something that's going to happen and that is beginning to happen right now. Those crushed by injustice will be hanging on to God, yes, and they will be shown to be in the right publicly. What does that mean for a church like HT here in exile in Jesus' lane? It's a tough life, isn't it? Far from home. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. <laughs> Back to Market Street. Well, at the least, it means a church like this will stand alongside those who find themselves at the bottom of the heap and who seem to be stuck there. Someone in this congregation, perhaps, who's facing an impossible situation at college, at work, a teacher, perhaps, a local shopkeeper, who knows? Might also mean thinking again about how we're going to support the agencies working for the homeless just on our doorstep. Well, I remember Desmond Tutu, just uh, in Great Samaria's church here, speaking once of a day in his struggle against apartheid when he knelt to pray with a father in the ashes of his burnt house. The father's home, it was set alight by the security forces and his own family were accused. I think he even lost a member of his own family in the fire. And Tutu said he knelt down with that father and in the rubble, the smoldering ruins, the father prayed, well, Lord, at least you know. In times in your Christian life, if you haven't been there already, when that's all you can say, well, at least you know how things really are. And one day, that'll be made public. It'll be in the open. The degraded will be upgraded. It makes us dizzy, of course, to think about that, but then this is the upside-down world, is it not, that Jesus is bringing about? But, of course, there's a problem here, because as we all know, the degraded get upgraded and very often become the new degraders. The oppressed become the new oppressors. The victimized become the new victimizers. Inside every bully, there's usually someone who's been bullied. History shows that over and over again. No one here needs reminding of what happened after the French Revolution or after countless Marxist revolutions. And of course, Jesus himself knows that's the way things go. Here he's talking to people right in front of him who are crushed by the Romans every day. And he knows many of them long for a Messiah who can reverse all that and arm themselves to the teeth and then turn on the Romans. When he says the meek will inherit the earth, he can't be thinking of that, can he? And so we need to go back to our beatitude and dig a bit deeper. A second thing here. In the upside-down world, it's the gentle who are strongest. To be meek is to be gentle. Now, let's be honest, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? Who wants to be gentle? The word gentle has a kind of sogginess about it. Gentle people are wet and wimpish. They tend to wear glasses from the 1990s and lanky pullovers. They never object to anything or anyone. 
and they never stop grinning. When they shake your hand, it feels like holding a fish you've just caught, but which has since died. <laughs> Real gentleness has nothing to do with that. When the Apostle Paul celebrates gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit, he's not thinking of religious drips. Now, real gentleness means something like not having to force things, not having to thump tables and slam doors. It's the opposite of browbeating or bullying. It means having a quiet center because you know how you stand with God. These people, Jesus is saying, these people are the strong ones. When my wife and I were preparing for our wedding, someone gave us a poster which shows two monks. And one monk says to the other, the closer you are to Jesus, the less you have to shout. Isn't that great? Put that above your, I don't know, put it on your computer screen or a desktop screensaver, whatever. The closer you are to Jesus, the less you have to shout. And that's all very upside down, of course, because in the world, as we know it very often, if you want to change things, if you want to get things done, if you want to be strong, you've got to learn how to shout, how to kick others aside, how to bully your way to the top. As in Jesus' day, strength meant, above all, commanding an army, bawling orders, constantly showing people who's boss, constant aggression, constant coercion. Well, you say to me, yeah, I know that's appalling, but in Cambridge, of course, it's never like that. No one behaves like that here. But even the quietest student can turn out to be a bully in disguise. Even the most introverted Don knows just how to intimidate and silence you. <laughs> Very often just by reminding you of the books he's just published. We've all met people in our colleges like this. Perhaps we're turning into one of these people ourselves. People who will do anything to get their own way. People who concede nothing. It wouldn't be seem dead saying sorry. That's strength, after all, isn't it? Strength means knowing what you want and doing all it takes to get it. Strength means never backing down, never apologizing, and ridiculing your opponents at every turn. That's strong. Now, of course, all this may be reminding you of someone very much in the news at present. Indeed, when your dear vicar, who I think is lurking at the back somewhere, there he is, hello, Rupert. When your vicar asked me to preach this morning, he gave me a delicate hint in the title. The title he gave me for this sermon was How Gentleness Trumps Force. I know it's so subtle, but your, subtle, your vicar's a very subtle operator. Don't underestimate him. And of course, he's right. Donald Trump may have many fine and wonderful qualities, but I doubt if gentleness would make it to the top of that list. But if the thought of Mr. Trump is just a little too painful on a Sunday morning, closer to home, just think of the TV series, The Apprentice, very interesting program, where Lord Sugar presides over what can only be called a bunch of seething piranhas, all gorging at each other to get to the top of the business world, and for some reason, absolutely captivated with the idea of spending every day with Alan Sugar. It's a strange ambition. The message is, of course, that to be strong not only means being aggressive, but crushing everyone else to pulp in the process. Friends tell me this is a travesty of the business world. It's certainly a travesty of true strength. Real strength is having the power to tell your biggest rival 
that you mess something up. Real strength is the power to argue your case with evidence, knowing you might turn out to be wrong. Real strength is the power to phone up that impossible family member that you've silenced for years. Real strength isn't just the power to make money, but the power to give it away. This church, this wonderful church, is showing real strength, not just when it raises vast sums of money, which incidentally is fantastic. No, but when someone walks in at the back and they find they're not forced into saying something and not intimidated into saying nothing, not bludgeoned into believing something. That's when a church shows real strength, when someone slips in at the back there and they can sniff a distinctive aroma, a particular kind of power they're not going to find anywhere else. The aroma of the infinite meekness of Jesus Christ. That's all upside down. Makes me dizzy to think about it. But then this is the world Jesus is bringing about. And a third thing about meekness, the thing which really gathers all this together, which wraps up the first two. In the upside down world, evil gets defeated from below. What do I mean? Well, picture an everyday scene. You've had a bad day. Your supervisor was late and bad-tempered. You missed lunch. Your phone died just when you needed to make some vital emails. So you get home pretty moody, and you take it out on your partner or flatmate or whatever. She asks you a very simple question about paying the rent or something, and you snap back. She bites her tongue and doesn't say anything, but dumps her anger on the cat by kicking it hard in the belly. The cat can't kick back, so it dumps its anger on the carpet, literally, which you're told to clear up. So you storm out and text a friend, and that spoils his evening, and so on. We get hurt, and we send it back out again. Something annoys us, we send it back out again, and often with double the force at a higher level. I get beaten in an argument on Monday. I want to trumpet, <laughs> trumpet with another one on Tuesday, or better argument. If a five-year-old gets abused repeatedly, all too often they turn into a much worse abuser. In other words, we're the victims of evil. We'll send the evil back out into the world, and very often with more of the same. On the international scene, if a country gets its national security threatened, very often it responds with a bigger counter-threat. In Syria, an incursion in one place gets answered by a bigger incursion in another. We talk about the escalation of violence, an escalation of hatred on ever higher levels, an ever rising cycle of revenge and counter-revenge, people pounding each other from ever greater heights. It's all familiar enough. But suppose there was one place in history where that didn't happen. Suppose there was one person in history who didn't do that who took on hurt 
but gave back none. Who took on hatred, but never sent it back out again. Didn't keep it in circulation. And suppose all this leads him to a hideous death, a crucifixion. And suppose that what we're seeing here is not just the hatred of the Romans and the Jews who killed him, but the hatred of the whole world loaded onto him. All the things which wreck our lives. The hurt at why you didn't get that promotion. Your rage with a parent who scarred your life. Your envy at why everyone else seems to do so much better than you. The anger of an angry world, broken world, all focus onto Jesus. He is meekness in person. He doesn't send the muck back out again. He takes it onto himself, down into the depths, down into the dark depths of hell, and bears it away once and for all, rising on the third day, free from it all, so that we can begin to be freed from it all. That's how God defeats evil, not by meeting it with greater force from above, but by coming in Jesus and absorbing it from below, the strange upside-down love of God. God doesn't sort out the wrongs of the world by hurtling a thunderbolt back at them from some superior height that goes under it all and lets it do it worse to him by bearing it away from below. The Lamb of God who takes away, takes away the sin of the world. That's how God defeats evil, from below, with meekness. What's that going to look like in a church? Something like this. I spent much of the year, I spend, I should say, much of the year in the United States and North Carolina just under a year ago, a man walked into one of the black churches not far from where I stay, and he was holding a semi-automatic assault rifle in one hand and loaded ammunition clip on the other. As he said later, I came with terrible things on my mind. And this was not long after those Charleston shootings, which you might remember. Now, the pastor, Larry Wright, when this man came in, he was preaching, and he stopped preaching. Probably a wise move. The 60 or so members of the congregation started to panic, some heading for the exits. The pastor walked towards the man. He took the weapon, gave it to a deacon, patted the man down, and called on the other deacons to embrace the man and make him feel welcome. In his words, I quote, I told the congregation, it's okay, he wants prayer. And I began to pray for him. And the power of God hit and he fell to his knees and began to cry and weep. And he had his face on the ground. That man was invited to sit in the front pew of the church to listen to the rest of the sermon. I just love that. Here you go, Rupert. A very wise move. The pastor said, I quote, I finished the message, I did the altar call, and he stood up, came up to the altar, and gave his life to Christ. I came down and prayed with him, and we embraced. It was like a father embracing a son. That's what the upside-down world looks like. There was no member of that congregation who was armed. Yet he was disarmed, this intruder, 
he was disarmed by meekness. I'll say one thing for the mice in the story. When they came back into the room that second night, they didn't assume that the room was upside down. They began to wonder whether they were. Just have a few moments of quiet. God, how awesome is your love, how infinite your compassion, meekness, how strong you are, and how often we forget what that strength really means and what it's really like. Give us strength this day to live as if the upside down world were the real world. Because we know from you it is the real world.